Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. So why often do I uh, criticize the worldview of scientific materialism? My own book is entitled The Collapse of Materialism, which I wrote with the intention of showing that because of the mounting shortcomings of materialism, its demise is near. I'm not a big fan of that worldview. From a personal standpoint, however, the negative, if not disastrous, feature of materialism is that it is a limiting worldview, because under this worldview, the body is made of material particles, known as genes and DNA. We can never break through the limitations inscribed in the genes. In the famous words of Richard Dawkins, the noted neo-Darwinian, we are robot vehicles blindly programmed to preserve the selfish molecule known as genes. And this makes sense if we are really robots, that is. A car or computer cannot go faster than the design and equipment allows. A software program cannot create information. All sorts of machines, from coffee makers to sewing machines to trains, cars, and buses, are limited by their parts, design, programs. They cannot reach beyond these physical limitations. But when we apply these mechanical principles to the human body, we can see that despite the high-sounding statements of many New Age writers and spiritual leaders, our soaring visions of a better life will always crash against the reality that materialism says is limiting us. These mechanical parts are here to restrict our potential. But fortunately, there's another perspective out there, one with a long history in Indian philosophy or idealism that takes a different approach to the problem. And an increasing database consisting of experiments, anecdotes, and studies are continuing to show the flaws of the Darwin robot vehicle, the Darwin and Dawkins robot vehicle model. Among these books is a brand new one by today's guest, Joseph Selby. The name of the book is called Breaking Through the Limits of the Brain. And in this book, he does a very clear and forceful job of showing not only the limitations of the material science worldview upon our, our lives, but also how real world experiences are showing the flaws in this limiting worldview. Joseph, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. One of the main principles of your book is that indeed the brain or what we conceive to be the brain is limiting our lives, is is limiting what we can be. What was your inspiration to write this book? Well, one way to look at the inspiration is that there are a lot of teachings out there, some from scientists, many from spiritual leaders, um, interviews with near-death experiencers, 
And they all speak to a much greater level of awareness that's possible for each of us. And that it's described as a, you know, a spiritual uh, experience, a spiritual awareness, vastly expanded awareness. And if that's true, which I believe it is, why don't we know it? Why, why is it that if this stupendous, expansive reality that is experienced by so many saints and sages and near-death experiencers is real, then, then what is it that keeps us from experiencing it all the time? So that was kind of the starting point. And that got me into looking at uh, the way the brain works. And I more and more came to realize that the brain is entirely plastic. It can be wired to be uh, able to perceive this higher realm, these greater realities, but it also can be wired to limit us to being aware just through the senses. And through the senses, we perceive what you were describing so articulately there of just the material world, the atoms and molecules that make up the world around us is the only thing the senses can reveal to us. But that limitation is self-imposed. We wired our brains and we can rewire our brains for this more expanded awareness. Well, you know, I think I think you you put it you put it well, not only just now, but also in your book. But I think this this principle of a self-imposed limitation is really a big problem. And it's it's amazing to me how many modern day orthodox scientists ignore the near death experiences, the um, the feats of strength uh, um instantaneous healing, the placebo effect. You could go on and on and on where you start seeing that the mind is larger than the brain or the or the mind, the spiritual mind, and we could use all sorts of ter- all sorts of terminology here, but that the human potential is more than science tells us it is. And this to me is 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 something where we are short selling ourselves. <laughs> And and I don't really understand that. And maybe maybe you have some thoughts on it. Why do we let science limit ourselves? Why is that the case? Well, I think that the influence of society, of our parents, our family, our friends, is reinforces this limited perception. And I don't think anyone in that you know, litany of of influences is doing it on purpose or with knowledge of forethought, so to speak. But it is the common way in which the world is viewed is that the world is all there is. The physical body is all there is. When we die, we're done. And that uh, we begin as a collection of atoms and molecules and we end as a collection of atoms and molecules. And it sets up a powerful expectation that that's 
all there is, and therefore that's all we could possibly perceive. And in in having that kind of influence, we don't look for anything else for the most part. If we're fortunate enough to be uh, exposed to spiritual teachings or to the writings of people who have a more expansive view of reality, then that can awaken in us this desire to to break through our limits, to break through this limited perception and, um, you know, to rewire the brain for that. But without that kind of influence, most people just go along. Yeah. And I, and I think that that, I think that's another good observation that most people just go along with the flow. It's like a narrative that we don't question in, in terms of, uh, you know, you've for for those who want really an encyclopedia of inspiring quotes, you got to pick up a copy of Joseph's um, new book, Breaking Through the, L- the Limits of the Brain, because he you did an amazing job of collecting so many inspirational quotes and comments and philosophies and and uh, statements from some of the world's greatest thinkers. If if there was an example from your research that you would give to people to show that the human potential or the mind is bigger than the brain, broader than the brain. What what example or examples would you would you um raise? Because you have so many of them, but which which one do you think really does it for you? Um I wish I could pronounce his last name, but <laughs> he's famous for his research in flow and peak experiences. And one of the things that he says after uh, studying so many people who have these tremendous transformative experiences is to say that the story of mankind is mankind selling itself short. And then there's a quote from Rumi, which is a, a nice one, which is, you know, you have wings. Why do you crawl through life? Right. And that sentiment, both of those really are saying the same thing from different perspectives. That sentiment is echoed through, you know, quotes from Einstein, from Heisenberg, from saints, from near-death experiencers, that there's just so much more. There's so much more than we know of what and, and, and who we are. Well, well, one of the, one of the core um, problems in this area and you talk about it and it's in my book it's almost in every book on consciousness because you cannot ignore it which is the, which is the hard problem of consciousness and it it's remarkable that um we haven't looked at that problem in a different way and you know and the hard problem of consciousness um in simple words in my book is how does something as ephemeral as consciousness arise from the the gray matter of the brain? How does this subjective awareness of being here of the world arise from the interplay of chemicals? It's really, if you think about it, it's like, well, that's a, that's a, that's a real brain twister there. Um, But we have the other problem, but then, but then you have the other, approach, which is a consciousness-based approach or consciousness-first approach, where maybe the brain is a derivation of consciousness. And I liked liked for you to maybe talk a little bit about the hard problem of consciousness and and what that 
means for you and your and your work? How do how do you approach that problem? Well, I like to think of the hard problem as being the the hard problem for biochemistry, but it's not a hard problem. Yeah, <laughs> for for those of us <laughs> that's who a are, good point. Yeah, <laughs> you know, willing to open up to the fact that the awareness we have, and the ability to think, um, and the ability to emote and connect with other people through uh, emotions, and many many studies done that show that brains can correlate with each other, they can connect with each other, just throws out the window this fundamental premise of biochemistry that consciousness must somehow in some way arise from biochemical, bioelectrical interactions in the brain. When in fact, there's no evidence that it arises from the brain. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. none. Which, which uh, in most know, fields is 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 a big problem when you don't right. have evidence. Yeah, right. But it, yeah. they kind of get away with it because they make the underlying assumption of scientific materialism, which is unspoken. But that assumption is that um, all there is or ever will be is matter and energy and interactions between the two. And therefore, consciousness must arise from it. Right. But this is just an assumption. This is a belief system. This is why I also say in my other book that um, scientific materialism as a point of view is a religion. It's not based on real facts. Right. And in fact, there are lots of studies. One of my favorite ones I'll tell in a moment, but there are lots of studies that clearly indicate scientific materialism is incomplete, short-sighted, and that it doesn't even address known findings from legitimate experiments. So the one that I remember that I think is illustrative of the true nature of thought and consciousness was conducted by having two people meditate together. There are variations on this experiment where they just simply talk to each other and agree to connect. And it's kind of, you know, left vague is what that means, but they agree to connect in some way. And then they're taken and put in separate rooms, separate labs, and in those labs are Faraday cages. Now, Faraday cages are... Um, a a particular kind of uh, instrument of studies done to uh, measure brain waves and brain function. Because when you're in a Faraday cage, you can't receive any electromagnetic energy from outside the cage. So by putting the two uh, subjects in different Faraday cages, you're ensuring that There's no way they can communicate either fraudulently or accidentally uh, using electromagnetic energy, you know, radios or anything else. Any other frequency spectrum kind of communication is out. Then they hook both of these subjects up to um, um, 
encephalograms, EECs, EEGs, excuse me, uh, that measure brain activity. And then one subject is given a brilliant flash of light in their eyes, which causes a huge spike on their EEG because it, you know, goes in the eyes, stimulates the sensory nerves, and that registers in the brain. And it's an unmistakable spike, just huge spike on the EEG. And then randomly, with no particular timing, they periodically flash that light in the person's eyes again. And what they found is that these two people who had either meditated together or agreed to stay connected, that 50% of the time, the person who was not flashed was sitting quietly in their own Faraday cage, registered a spike on their EEG that had nothing to do with anything happening in, you know, to them uh, while they sat there. And variations on this have been conducted that show there is this consistent correlation between people's brain responses and the perception of some kind of input to one of them, but not the other. And it's been repeated over and over and over again, but this basically tells us that the brain, even if you think the brain creates consciousness, that consciousness is not limited to being inside the skull. Yeah. That, yeah. that in some way it has to connect to this other person. And to, you know, by extension, all of us are connecting to other people by consciousness. Yeah. That that's an amazing. Yeah. It's an this amazing ignored it, by by yeah. biochemist. Yeah. Well, it's sort of a convenient um tactic to to ignore the evidence against you. And it hap- I mean, everybody does it, and part of it is there's no perfect theory. Uh, on the other hand, when when the evidence continues to mount that materialism cannot explain the world we live in, and in particular, let's face it, um, when when they talk about theories of everything, they're talking about theories of everything except for everything they can't explain, which would be religion, <laughs> right. spirituality, uh you know, placebo effect, faith healing going on, all all the things that some folks have put in the category of the supernatural, the paranormal, um, you know, given these titles uh in the sense that they're that they're fantasies. Um so it's it's really amazing that 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 we're doing this, that you know, that we're still breaking out of it. One thing that comes to mind and is that you know, you had some great quotes in your book. I I love the ones from the uh, old Indian philosophers that talk about the individual mind joining with the infinite mind and gaining consciousness and gaining strength. And, you know, that's really what this is about, what this is about, you know, and, and you use the word super consciousness. And I will um, say that I'm sure you've, you've read and I think a, a leader in this area is Pierre Del. Deschardins, who wrote The Phenomenon of Man, who said that consciousness, I'm sorry, that evolution 
expands from the physical body to to a higher form of consciousness and until there's a super consciousness so so he 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 wrote that book about 100 years ago or so maybe 80 years something like that but anyways it's 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 all over indian literature except in my opinion the indian literature is a little too spiritual based and they tend to denigrate the physical world and and i i think and i think where we're heading joseph in my own opinion is that we're we're heading towards a place where we unite the physical with the spiritual and i think that is um really you know going beyond science and religion to some place where they can both coexist in the same person in other words a logical and a spiritual so so there's a lot so there's a lot here when you were talking about the um the the two meditators i was thinking about i don't know if you've ever read um or the paranormal studies of twins i remember there's a there's a book and i think it's written by one of the the leading researchers of esp and it's amazing the mental connection between twins i remember there's a story about you know that the teacher was concerned about the twins you know cheating on an exam or something so they put them in separate rooms they gave them separate exams and they had the same answers in the, in the, uh-huh. in, in, to the, you know, an essay exam, which is, which is just remarkable. But um, in terms of, you know, where you think things are heading in um, with, with this field, I mean, you, you spent a lot of time, you know, the physics of God, uh, which I've also read. Uh, we talked about that a couple of years ago. Um, what kind of reaction are you getting or have you gotten about, you know, sort of pushing the envelope here on, on scientific materialism? Do you, do you think there's any chance that we're going to see a breakthrough, <laughs> uh, or, you know, a breakthrough in science in our lifetimes? Or what what is your sense of that? Well, direct feedback, you know, is uh, luckily uh, very positive. Right. People, you know, who who do reach out and communicate with me about having read the book, and uh you know drawn some inspiration from it are are very positive but i would say in general you know beyond sort of anecdotal kind of connections i would say in general that the scientific materialistic paradigm is beginning to break and i think where it breaks, you know, where the tipping point will be is hard to predict. But uh, I ran into a very interesting uh, statistic on a Pew study about how scientists viewed religion. And I was quite surprised to see that in their study, they found that 51% of scientists believed in higher consciousness or a higher power or in God. Yeah. So I think what we have is not an atypical human situation where there are a lot of scientists who just stay quiet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they don't want to be uh, singled out as somebody who's, you know, crazy enough to believe in God by the hardcore you might say the hard right scientists who insist on uh, a very 
strict materialist interpretation of all scientific studies. And so they just keep their heads down and do their work. But I think more scientists than not, obviously from that study, it's just 51%. But I imagine um, that it's pretty common for scientists to be able to say, well, science simply doesn't have all the answers. There, There are what I call the big three that science really has no or poor answers to. The big three are, where did the universe come from in the first place? All right. Scientists can talk endlessly about what happened once the Big Bang banged, but where did the Big Bang come from? Where did this stupendous amount of energy emerge from? They don't have an answer to the origin of life. They go on and on about how, right. you know, it must have started in the primordial ooze or whatever. But if you really dig into the research that is available now, none of their uh, theories have been shown to be viable in any way. And they're certainly a million miles from being actually able to create life artificially in a test tube. Right. And then the last is the one we've already discussed, which is the origin consciousness. So science really doesn't have answers to the big questions. And I imagine many, many scientists are aware of that and they just don't they don't challenge it they say well it's doing good i'm just guessing that they're you know this is their thought process science is contributing a great deal to the betterment of mankind and we have a lot of benefits from it and i'm just going to keep doing my part in it but i'm going to look for the answers to the big questions elsewhere yeah and that's a you know i've a very a very good observation. I go back all the time to the same question. You know, what is it going to take? And I think the you know the tipping point is the is a good way to put it. And you know, there's all sorts of studies, research on what it takes to change someone's mind. And in some ways, um, you know, maybe you have to wait for the the old generation to move on and the new and new brighter minds. Maybe it will maybe some of the leading scientists need to like alter their 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 viewpoint um and or or maybe it's because they an alternate theory just starts explaining more i I happen to think that you know the angle you took and i've been I've been doing writing on the same um topic, which is when it starts affecting the individual um in other words. If science is telling us a a negative story and we're following that story and we're and we really are selling ourselves short, then that's that that becomes personal. It, it's not just an abstract intellectual venture into, you know, materialism or idealism or, you know, consciousness based or material based. It becomes something that affects you. And um, so on that score. Um, you use the term superconscious awareness uh, in your in your book, and you know, I uh, I think I I think I know what you're talking about. But can you can you really just maybe talk a little bit about what the superconscious awareness is and how it relates to the theme of your book about breaking through the brain? Well, all of us are conscious, right? We we are aware of our surroundings, we interact with other people, 
we have thoughts, we have feelings. And this is something that uh, is very familiar with us and really sort of unquestionably real to us. But there are people who have experiences that transcend what we think of as conscious awareness. And there's a marvelous story that uh, I think maybe the first story I tell in the book um, about whoop, blanking on his name. Famous aviator flew from New York to Paris. Lindbergh. Lindbergh. Thank you. Ah. Charles Lindbergh. Yes. Um, Charles Lindbergh made that flight. And then years later, he wrote an autobiography in which he described that flight. And few people know this, but during that flight, when he was almost going to fall asleep, he started fighting sleep almost from the moment he took off because he had been uh, working night and day, literally, to get his plane ready and his sponsors happy and everything that you'd have to do to, you know, take this momentous flight. And the moment he took off, he started falling asleep. And to fall asleep going in a plane without modern day instruments was basically a death sentence. You know, you were going to fly off course and never be seen again, or you would crash into the ocean. Um, so it was life or death to stay awake. And he fought it and he fought it and he fought it. And he, then he said at one point, he fought it so hard that he broke into another level of awareness. And he had spherical vision. He could see as well behind himself as in front of himself. He had a sense of deep, calm, well of well-being and energy. Um, he said that people he had known from past lives came to him while he was in that state and gave him encouragement and talked with him. And it just carried him through almost all the way to Paris in a just a wave of joyous superconsciousness. Superconscious because beyond what our normal conscious awareness is. And he uh he got a lot of mixed reviews, as you can imagine, yeah. during that that yeah. story. But that's one example of what it means to be super conscious. And it also in, indicates that, you know, he was not necessarily a meditator or a spiritual man or, uh, you know, by no means a spiritual teacher. And yet he had that experience in this dramatic fashion. And I think that what we glean from spiritual teachers, from near-death experiencers, is that we all have access to that, that superconsciousness, which is both expanded awareness and expanded feeling, wonderfully expanded feeling into love and joy and peace and a profound sense of well-being, is something we can all do if we uh, choose to to seek it. Yeah, and the, 
There are so many examples, um, and you named quite a few. There, there's one example in your book that caught my attention where there was this incredible marathon writer, um, I'm sorry, incredible marathon runner, who was, I guess it was like a 135-mile run, which is just unbelievable. And I guess at the 45-mile mark, he experienced this out-of-body um, event, you know, saw himself running. And I think we've all had that kind of feeling, maybe not as vividly, but we've all had that kind of uplifting experience, um, usually during moments of exercise. And I want to talk to you about about meditation for a second, but it's also very similar to the near-death experiences where someone's on the operating table, their their brain goes dead. Um, and then they come back to life and they report about seeing, you know, hovering over their body and seeing their body laying there on the table and the doctors and the nurses, you know, doing things to their body. And it's, it's, it's sort of, it's anecdotal in the scientific materialist world. Okay. Well, how do you prove that? Well, a lot of things are proven by personal experience and, when the personal experiences build up, it's sort of like it starts raising the, the real question, well, should we be ignoring these experiences? Then you move to the next step, step, I think, which is, well, we know there is a grander realm out there. We don't have to be mystical about it. It's real. Are we missing something by not understanding it better and by not taking advantage of it. And this leads to uh, another facet of your book that I thought was very interesting, which is that you sort of, the first half of the book is sort of, you know, describing um, the support for, for breaking through the brain, the neural circuitry, um, the plasticity of the mind, of the brain. Uh, But then, but then you get into um, how do you, um contact this higher level of consciousness. And so I like I like you just to talk a little bit about about, you know, in the simplest possible way, meditation. I know that I know that, you know, you you are a, a well practiced um meditator, but what kind of tips would you give for the listener if they if they want to do something that, you know, just get started in trying to do this yourself? What what kind of tips would you give somebody? Do it. Yeah, there's a good, there's a good one. There's a good one. You know, a lot of people ask me, well, what do you think the best meditation technique is? And my somewhat cheeky answer is the best meditation technique is the one you will actually do. Yeah. Um, You have to prove it to yourself. That is the power of meditation. And I've had many, many people say to me that, you know, they started meditating and then, you know, they had this particular experience. And those experiences vary. The way people describe them varies. But what unites them is that it was something that allowed them to experience beyond their normal awareness, whether it was entering a sense of peace like they don't normally experience, whether it was feeling open to inspiration. Maybe they had intuitive insights into themselves or others. Maybe it was uh, that they just simply felt deeply relaxed and calm 
in a way that was more than just the body being still, but it was a profound level of calmness. And that is the power of meditation because it it makes it an actual experience for you. There, you know, there's a whole wave of people today who are known as the uh, spiritual but not religious group. Right. And I think the key difference between spirituality and religion is that religion tells you just accept all these beliefs and you'll be rewarded in the hereafter, where spirituality says, I don't want to wait. I want to experience something in the here and now. And that experience can be a wide variety of things. But I want immediate experience. I want immediate um, benefit from whatever my whatever I embrace on a spiritual level. And the core of that really is meditation. That's where it becomes real and alive. And until you do it, you're just, you know, kind of maintaining a belief system. Is <laughs> there any... Yeah. Be helpful, yeah. but not the answer. Well, I guess I have two observations. Uh, first, uh, on the um, religious beliefs of, of scientific materialists, I get the sense that most of the reaction of modern-day scientists, and that would be the leaders, Richard Dawkins is... is um, Steven Weinberg, uh, um, Lisa Randolph, the ones that have written the most of the bestsellers in, in that genre, they're really reacting against biblical religion or the Koran. They're not really reacting against what we're talking about, which is really Eastern or Indian philosophy-based spirituality. Um you know, there there's a number there's a book um called The Perennial Philosophy that really talks about um how the oneness of humankind is rooted in all the world's cultures. It's 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 just it's it's a universal belief or feeling. And I think that's part of the problem is that um it's not that difficult to slam around biblical literal um literalism it's much more difficult to attack the foundation of the vedanta or the upanishads or you know the 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 leading indian thinkers and and so i do think that it's it's good that society is moving towards more individual based spirituality than the organized form of religion. Going to the mediation point of things is that I think a lot of folks think that it's some kind of fancy um, kind of um, tricky uh, discipline that it takes years of training, you know, to go through this, to go uh, into mediation, uh, to, to do meditation. So, what is the simplest possible way? I mean, you say just do it. Well, if what's a what's the simplest possible instruction for somebody who wants to begin uh, meditating? 
sit there, be quiet? What what kind of things would you tell them? Well, probably the the simplest form of meditation is mindfulness meditation, which grew in enormous popularity um, because it is, um, you know, it's non-spiritual. It is simple and it takes a, a minute to explain it to you. Sit still. Watch your thoughts. Watch them come. Watch them go. Don't react to your thoughts. Just watch your thoughts. Stay still. And you can have very relaxing, very self-transformative experiences doing that. Because what it really points out is if you can get past physical sensation and if you can not get caught up in your own thoughts and just begin your normal process of thinking about things that you will immediately feel better because being caught up in the the activities of the body and being caught up in the normal use of the mind as a tool to get you through your day those things block you from experiencing things beyond uh, conscious awareness. And this is really the heart of break through the limits of the brain. We have inadvertently wired our brains to be only aware of the physical body and to think. But if we practice things like mindfulness meditation, which is very simple, or more um, meditation techniques with more specific purposes. The one that I use is called Hung Sa, which is really to get the mind not to just let you watch and let go of thoughts, but to actually get to the mind to a point of concentration. That when you use any of those, you will find you feel great. You you directly experience. I like to use the term experiential spirituality because once you start to experience it, there's no question in your mind that you're experiencing something higher. You're experiencing something greater. You're touching into super consciousness. You're connecting to spirit. You're uh, touching the mind of God. There, there's so many ways to explain it or describe it, but the similarity among them all is that it's a real experience that is uplifting, that is wonderful. Yeah, and I think we've got to, you know, this this is this is part of us of a of changing the narrative. The the accessing the higher states of consciousness and whatever term we want to use, and you know, we have a tendency in this field to 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 use new age sounding terms which a lot of people just reject because of society but if if it's true that there is a higher state of consciousness an infinite mind um a divine mind whatever term god whatever term um you know works with you then accessing it it seems like it's a natural thing to do and there's personal benefit as you say, it's there's a peacefulness um, that is very important that that 
that's sort of a anti-stress, anti-anxiety feeling. But I think, and and I I go pretty far on this one. I really think that ethics and morality sort of follow, because as more people appreciate, you know, the unity, the one consciousness, et cetera, then that does lead to morality. I think. And I also think that that's really underscores some of the great um, moral teachings of our religious leaders, such as Jesus Christ, um, Buddha, uh, all all the leaders. They have this overwhelming um, morality to the way they approach life. And when you think about it, if we had more people who meditated or maybe had a greater appreciation for the world, maybe we would have a higher stage of morality. So I, I think that the moral element is something that is important to me. It's, this is not, it's great for personal achievement. And I was in Europe recently and there's a story about, I think it was Mozart, one of those guys, you know, all these songs came to them, the, the symphonies, you know, they didn't write anything. It came to them. And there's so many of these great artists that they'll say the same thing. The lyrics just showed up. And and I, I slept on in the morning. I read out, you know, I wrote out the song. There's all these benefits personally, but I also think that there's a, a moral element to it. I don't know whether you've thought about that, but that's I I go I go that direction because I think that helps change the narrative and it, it makes it more of a common goal than just an individual pursuit so i, yeah, know what your I agree are. i think that i would just highlight that many people who don't have a, any draw to religion or to spirituality uh might give um you know honest confirmation of the importance of morality but when but but still feel like it's a construct it's right. you know let's do this because otherwise society falls apart and you know the world is no good for any of us if morality isn't something that uh we take seriously but when you meditate when you have uh spiritual experiences morality comes naturally it's not an imposition you don't have to you know dig deep and decide to be moral it's a more natural expression because i think in one sense it's because you feel more connected to other people you right. feel like it's one big infinite divine family of which you are a part and um doing on to others as you would have them do on to you uh feels very sensible and natural. And so I, I totally agree that an outcome of more and more people making that interconnection is going to be a better world. Yeah, I mean, and the, the leaders, um, and you mentioned the um, some of the, the Indian thinkers, um, writers that sort of spearheaded and really originated this whole movement um they were all i mean look at gandhi i mean they were all incredibly peaceful human beings i mean it's it's such a contrast with with our day and age where you know strength 
um, bravado, um, you know, and then certain other things are really a sign of strength um, that it seems like we could use a little bit more of, of super consciousness. So we so we've covered a lot of ground here, Joseph, in a short amount of time. And I know I could not have I have not touched everything in your book. But is there something that you'd like to leave the listener with? Uh, either from your 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 own research or from your book that you think is a, a point that you like to get across? Well, I pretty much always answer that question in exactly the same way, which <laughs> is prove it to yourself. If there's anything that you heard me or you heard Philip say that intrigued you or makes you want to know more, obviously, I would love it if you read my book, but more importantly, experience it for yourself. Actually turn it into your own personal spiritual experience. And one of the best ways to do that is to meditate. You know, pick a meditation technique. There's one in my book, highly recommend it. There's uh, that same technique can be found on my website, which is um, josephselby.com. But overall, the main message is, is do it. Prove it to yourself. If you if you ever wonder why uh, this kind of uh, discussion even comes up among people, you know, why are people so interested in meditation? Why do they talk about it? Try it. Test it out for yourself. It's sort of like, in a, in a way, it's like exercise. If you never exercised ever in your life, uh, anybody who's into physical fitness would say, well, you yeah. should be exercising. Yeah. So if you've never meditated, you should meditate because it is so connected to your uh, creativity, to your intuition, to your sense of well-being. It's everything for your heart, mind, and soul that that exercise is for the body. And I think... There's at the end here, I don't think there's any doubt that this is where um, the uh, our culture is going. This is this is sort of the um, beginnings of what I think is going to be a scientific revolution. I don't know how long it's going to take. This topic comes up a lot. We all want it to happen as soon as possible. But something um, as big as this is, is probably going to take some time. But we can't forget in in the end here that even though scientific scientific materialism is based upon the world as a machine model science itself has discarded the machine model and in fact the particles that supposedly make up the machine are not really particles according to quantum theory so that leads to uh, another point that when we move towards this new um worldview this new approach we will i think be going to a place that we are all actually very familiar with this is philip camella this is conversations beyond science and religion joseph very much uh i appreciate your time and um it's always good talking to you and uh i encourage everyone to check out his book it's got not only a lot of good anecdotes and stories and reasoning but it's got some great tips on meditation thank you very much and we'll talk to you next time 
You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camilla. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com. 